Thanks for choosing this podcast from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church in East Toledo. I think you'll find it interesting as Pastor Dan addresses uh, the tragedies of the situation of our world at large right now from a scriptural viewpoint. God bless you, and may you reach new heights in Jesus today.
Alright. Let's pray briefly before we go to the Word today, shall we? Father in Heaven, this is Your Word. You've spoken to my heart. I pray for myself alone. I am just a man. You are God. I'm not just flesh and bones because You inhabit me. And I'm asking you, Lord, now to take control and help us to see from this text that which you would have us to see today. That we might be light and salt in a world that is the most learned of men or just as ignorant one as the next. But your wisdom, by your power and your authority, by the truths that you deliver into us, may we be delivered today. We praise you and the sacrifice of Jesus, his gift, your word. Lord, may it come from the top down today, from you, as the God of all creation, as the master of all factors, as the mover and the shaker, And the details be in your hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the sermon today is Almost Done. It's almost done. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 24. And I particularly threw that at you in advance today because uh, Matthew chapter 4 is moderately lengthy and we will read the entire chapter. As we do that, we will expose it. I think by the time we're done exposing it, you will have seen everything that you really need to see today and heard everything that you really need to hear. But just in case we're not all on the same page understanding what's going on after we've exposed it, we'll break it down briefly and kind of summarize it, if you will, into some impact points, some things that we can do something about. Okay? So the title of the sermon is Almost Done, and this is Matthew chapter 24. This chapter takes place toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He is headed toward the cross. He's not there yet, obviously, but if you flip just to the right a little bit in roughly uh, chapter 26 or so, um, Jesus begins to say, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for the crucifixion. That's chapter 26, verse 2. So it's coming fast. And Jesus finds it necessary to teach his disciples and to answer one particular question a certain way, and it's lengthy, because it's all the answer, if you will. And so I think it's worthwhile for us to look at it. Okay, so it's chapter 24, beginning verse 1. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. So he says, look, now Jesus has been to the temple before, they've all been to the temple before, but they're pointing out these beautiful buildings that are the temple and the temple grounds to Jesus. And he answered and said to them, now I submit to you that the word there answered is chosen intentionally, he's answering a question that has not been spoken, even though they're pointing to the buildings and saying, hey, it's not, Jesus is saying, as if they said to Jesus, have you seen these beautiful buildings? <laughs> and of course he's seen the beautiful buildings, right? So. He answers and says to them, do you not see all these things? So they're saying to Jesus, have you seen these beautiful buildings? And he says, haven't you seen them? Do you actually see them? 
Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what the beautiful buildings symbolize. There's a lot of money. There's power and authority. Even some freedom. Even though they're under Roman rule, there was some freedom that, that these beautiful buildings were allowed to be built to honor God. They're supposed to honor God, so they're supposed to represent a holy and righteous God, a just God, a God that one ought not sin against and preach something different, right? Which is exactly what they've been doing. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Don't you see all these buildings? And in that question right there is the entire rest of the chapter wrapped up. It's a summary statement. Now, commentators won't necessarily say that is true, but I think you'll see it when I break it down and the Holy Spirit showed it to me, so I'm going to try to show it to you, okay? He says, truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came up to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end age? And so that's sort of like a three-parter question. When's that going to happen? You know, tear everything down. And secondly, what, what signs will show us that it's about time for you to come again? And then thirdly, when is the end of the age? And this question is the same question that Jesus asked them. Do you not see all these things? And you're saying, I don't quite understand that. How can that be? But they're asking Jesus the exact same question. And again, it is the rest of the chapter broken down. And Jesus answering, answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. In other words, pay attention. Be careful that you don't go off after someone else's idea of what is right. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and, I will, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Okay, So Jesus is saying, it's a two-parter, but he's saying, number one, don't follow off after these other ideas of what Christianity is, or these other ideas of what godliness is, or the other ideas of what a Christ might be. Right? Don't get confused, and he's going to be a little bit more literal about that in a second. But the second part of it says, you will be hearing of wars, rumors of wars, and so on. He's talking about tragedy in the world. There will be tragedy. There will be bad things happening in the world. And when those bad things happening start happening and you start hearing about them, even though they're not happening to you, what is going to be your natural response? Well, it's the same thing that's going on in the world right now with this coronavirus. I get, I'm, I'm here to tell you right now that nobody who has the coronavirus and is in the hospital went to the grocery store to buy toilet paper. Right? Nobody who actually has the coronavirus and knows it and is being treated for it is in the grocery store buying toilet paper. It's all the people that don't have it. They're all worried about this tragedy coming upon them. They're frightened, and he's saying that is exactly the opposite of what we should do. So you see this tragedy coming, don't be frightened. And that frightenedness is a dangerous thing because of what he said in the first place. It will lead us to grip onto some version of Christianity, or some version of Christ even. And notice that it, shows, it says that there will be those who come to mislead. So there's going to be people who actually want us to go that way, to grip onto some other version of Christ or Christianity other than what he teaches. And that will be a natural outflowing of the fear that comes when people hear about the tragedy. Verse 7 says, at the end of verse 6, he said, these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So tragedy is going to come. You don't get out of it. You don't get out of tragedy. Verse 7, for a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. And a famine is when people go without. And an earthquake is when the very earth itself shakes. And I submit to you that this is a, this is a bracket. So when he says a famine, that's when people go without. And when he says an earthquake, that's when the very earth itself shakes. And so he's inferring that there will be everything in between. 
Right? He didn't list all the tragedies that were possible. He's saying every kind of tragedy that you imagine in will be, will be possible and will happen. And you will hear about it and you will see it and it will, you will experience it and all kinds of tragedies will take place. And don't look from those tragedies immediately to look for a way out and looking for a way out because people will tell you there is the Christ or whatever. And again, he's going to get more specific about that in a second. But all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. And so Jesus is this answer to what will the signs be. He says that all this tragedy in the world, all these bad things that are happening, they're just the beginning of birth pangs. The first shaken of the womb as the, the judgment of God is about to be poured out, as the grace of God is about to truly be seen for what it is. Verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation. He's talking about the world delivering Christians up to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. That's pretty bad stuff. That's the real tragedy, if you will, that we would want to avoid, except that maybe it isn't as tragic as it sounds on the surface. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. So this is talking about now Christians delivering up Christians. So this is people adversarially coming against other people, people who believe in Christ and claim the name of Christ, coming against other people who claim the name of Christ and essentially casting them out, letting them. And so it's like we say, well, they're persecuting the church. Well, let's just give them our weak or let's just give them our wounded or just give that guy always had a bad attitude. Let's give them them. Right. So this is Christian versus Christian. And I submit to you, the greatest persecution that will ever take place will be amongst those who think they know Jesus, who think they know Jesus and how Jesus is, going against others who think they know Jesus and how Jesus is. And, and the group that is being persecuted is most likely to be the group that's actually right. The group that's doing the persecuting is probably not the group that's right. Many false prophets will arise. And they will mislead many. So there will be people coming up supposedly speaking for God, and they're going to mislead people. And because lawlessness is increased, there'll be more and more people. They're going to come up, speak for God, lead people to go the wrong way because they follow the false prophets. And then lawlessness is increased. There'll be people doing more and more of what they shouldn't do, things that are not godly. Most people's love will grow cold. Ah, not only is that horrible in the world today and already something you can see, right? Arden was showing me the text uh, that President Trump set up from Twitter about how he was asking people to pray today, and the very first response was, I'm an atheist and you're Satan. <laughs> it was the very first thing that somebody said back on Twitter to the president when he asked the nation to pray about today, about, about the, uh, have a day of prayer today about the virus and sickness and the world situation and the fear and all that. That was the very first response. I think there's not a lot of hate. People's love have grown cold. Kid yourself not, there will be people coming against our households. If we stand for Christ, it's going to happen. And it's tragedy. And he says, when it happens, we mustn't go after those who will false teach and make it easier on us. 13, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. That verse right there is uh, the action plan, if you will. Endure to the end, be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. So the end coming becomes more about the advance of the gospel than it does about all these other tragedies. 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out there, out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child, to those who nurse babes in those days. 
but pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. So he's talking about an instant in time. 21 says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever fall. And people, nor ever shall. And people want to say that Jesus has gone aside. Remember, they asked three questions. So they asked the three questions of Jesus. Tell us when these things will be. What will be the signs of your coming? And of the end age. And there's three separate things. So we want to know about the end of the age, right? And so people want to say that when Jesus switches in verse uh, 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation, that Jesus has switched to talk about something else. But that's not actually true, is it? He's still talking about the same thing. So how is he still talking about the same thing? Well, I'm here to tell you that historically, Jesus is talking about an actual event. Now, he's talking about it before it actually happened. But there is a moment in time at which what's called the abomination desolation stands in the temple, and the Jewish temple is torn down. Remember, he said, all these things will be down. So the temple would be gone. Right? The Jewish temple is tor- was torn down brick by brick, and it was so bad, what happened was they, the, they burned it, and the stuff that was in it that was made of precious metal melted, and it ran down in the cracks in the floor between the bricks, so they tore up every brick in the floor to get the precious metals out. So there was literally not one brick of the temple left unturned. This is an actual event that happened in AD 70. In four years leading up to that, the Roman armies were already sitting around Jerusalem, but they were, getting, they were in the process of getting a new sermon. Jericho had already been captured, right? And, but for four years, the armies were sitting there. And then a moment in time came where the abomination of desolation, a man stood in the temple who should not have been allowed to go into the temple. You can symbolize it however you want, but the bottom line is the temple was about to go down. Christians in Jerusalem saw these verses that Jesus had preached, or he, that he had taught that to the disciples, and he saw, they saw those events unfolding, and they fled Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if they went back in for their extra cloak or not. I wasn't there. But the bottom line is they fled Jerusalem. They fled to a city called Pella, which has now been the scene of many archaeological digs. And they found all kinds of evidence that these events actually occurred, that, a Christian, that the Christian churches from Jerusalem fled there and lived in Pella. Okay, so this is an actual event that Jesus is warning them is coming. So when you see that happening, here's the sign. When you see that happening, flee the city and don't take any moment in time to go back for any of your comforts. Any of your extra things, rather go, okay? So what is, it do, what is it doing here? Why is it in here amongst the teaching of what Jesus is teaching at this time? Is it part of the end times? No, it's not, right? Because now it's been 2,000 years, going on 2,000 years, at 1970 years or whatever, 1960 years, and the end times have not yet come, right? Jesus has not come, so he's not talking about right before he came. And he, he even said that all these other things that would be happening before he comes, he's not talking about that. Was it talking about uh, the end of the age? No. Was it talking about signs of his coming? No. What was it talking about? Well, he's using this as an object lesson. You've seen object lessons before, right? You've heard of parables. But this is not a parable. This was an actual prophecy of an event that would happen. And he's using this to teach them something. And it is the most important part. And because it's about an actual event that would happen, and that event happened, everybody always goes, oh, that part's done. Except it is the single most important part of this passage as far as us extrapolating from the passage how we're supposed to live. And so we'll be coming back to it. But the bottom line is Jesus was warning them about an actual event and he was using that actual event to teach what they really needed to know in response to the questions that were asked, which was what? 
Jesus asked them, do you not see these things? Do you not see these things? They, they pointed up and said, see the buildings? And he said, do you not see them? And then they said, tell us when all these things, when, all the, when will all these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And out of that, he gives them this prophecy and they respond to the prophecy correctly, most of them anyway, as far as we know, at that time and flee and are therefore saved from the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and so on. Remember that the new church, even up to AD, uh, up to AD 70, I think it goes that far, was meeting in, in Solomon's colonnade, which is on the side of the temple. That's where they were meeting at. So the building they were meeting in was destroyed. And they fled and they avoided that destruction because of this prophecy. But that's not the only thing that this was for. This was a teaching to answer those questions. We'll go on. It says in verse 22, And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. So 21 and 22, for then there will be a great tribulation. And 22, and unless those days be cut short, no life would have been saved. Those two, they now say, well, now, now he's gone aside. Now he's talking about the end times, right? They make Jesus out to be this like scatterbrained ADHD teacher that he's bouncing all around. He's not talking about the same thing. But the entire chapter, all of this is all about the same thing. And he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. That, in or, and the only way that can be about the end time tribulation is for you to say, we'll be, we'll be going through the tribulation, but God's going to cut the tribulation short because the church will still be there. God's going to cut the tribulation short and people will be saved. That doesn't make any sense. That confuses against other texts. It's not talking about that. He is giving us an understanding of something to deal with that which frightens us to deal with the tragedy that is real. Verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ, do not believe him. So in the midst of all this tragedy and everything he's talking about, he's saying, don't listen to somebody who says, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ. Listen to this person, they're Jesus, or whatever. He goes on, For false Christs and false prophets will arise, will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In other words, there will be people come up who say, I am a Christian or I am a Christian preacher. And they will preach a version of Christianity which will lead people away from actual Christianity. If it were possible, they would lead away even those whom God has locked in, whom God has chosen for himself. They will make efforts to lead away even those whom God has locked in for himself. But don't do it. Don't fall under their... Now, right now, in America, in, in Southwest America, there's a... Uh, it's basically almost like a cult, but there's a version of Christianity that is rising up, and they're having all kinds of miracles, and people are saying that must be the true Christianity or whatever, but their doctrine is not biblical doctrine. So when you dig into what they actually believe, they don't believe, but people are flocking to it by the thousands. Why? Verse 25, Jesus warns, Behold, I told you in advance, and I submit to you, preparation is everything. Preparation to do what God is teaching us to do in this passage is everything. Verse 26, If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of, some, of the Son of Man be. God will not do, in that moment of time when Jesus comes again, it will not be in secret. It will, not be, it will be a surprise to everyone, but it will not be a surprise that it has happened. Even the lost, everyone will know when Jesus comes again. He will make it plainly evident. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 29, 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, it's going to get really bad. After that, it's going to get really bad. You see no tragedy. You don't know what tragedy is. It's going to get really bad. Verse 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So now, this is about the end times. But I submit to you, it is not specifically an answer to that question about the end times. This all wraps up together in what they were supposed to be that day, what they were supposed to be doing. Verse 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Verse 32, he's still talking. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. Okay, so now we've obviously switched topics, right? Wrong. This is all the same topic. The disciples haven't said anything. They didn't say, oh, Lord, I got this. Okay, they haven't moved locations. They haven't changed a separate spot. This is linear. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. Okay, so when things are going good, shiny, pretty, nutritious, you know things. the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things recognize that he is near, right at the door. In other words, when the signs that the tragedy comes to fruition, when it really comes, and when Jesus blasts across the sky and shows everybody who he is, then it's done. Okay? And until then, it's not done. This tragedy, people would say, well, we're closer now than we ever were, and that's a fact. Okay? But every tragedy that comes, people want to say, well, Jesus is about to come, and we don't know that that's true. The fact is, we are no closer other than chronologically, which God is not limited to time. Chronologically, we're closer because he's going to come on a certain day at a certain time. But other than that, we are no closer now than we were before. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So is he talking about the end times? No, there's something here that he's talking about. He wants you to see something that's got to come into place, something that's got to come into being. And it's needed to start then, and it needs to remain all the way through now and up until Jesus comes. He's talking about something in this passage of Scripture that was to begin then, stay, and remain in the church and God's people all the way up until he came again, whether that's a day, a year, a hundred years, or thousands of years. That's what he's talking about. 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Once I show you this, once I teach you this, there is something you need to know, and it can never end. That's what he's saying. It's all the same. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. You don't get to know when the lights are going to go off. You don't get to know when the trumpet's going to sound. You don't get to know when Jesus is going to soar across the sky and the angels are going to collect everybody up. We don't get to know that. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of the Father, nor the Son, but the Father alone. In other words, only God the Father knew. So when Jesus was on earth, even he didn't know. He could have been thinking it was going to be months or years or decades, not knowing it was going to be thousands of years. Now, once he's in heaven, time doesn't work the same as it does, and I get that, and I'm not going to get into the details of how that works. I don't even know all the details of how that works. But what I'm saying to you is he, while he was on earth, even he said he didn't know. The angels didn't know. You want to know? Sorry, you don't get to know. People have been trying to control that since the beginning because they missed what I'm, what I'm seeing in this passage of Scripture. Verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Still talking about the same thing. Remember, if he had switched topics and back and forth and back and forth and topics, if they had gone to a different place or whatever, then that verse 37 brings them back to the original questions. This is all the same thing. This is not all broke up and dis, dis, 
connected and all over the place. But the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. People are going to be doing all the things that they do, right? There's going to be a young man playing seven hours of video games until four o'clock in the morning. And there's going to be a guy working 15 hours trying to get overtime to make a little bit extra money so he can buy a beach house. And there's going to be a, a woman who's chasing after five kids because her husband left her because he, he found some girl on social media. And there's going to be every event that's going on in life right now and more. There's going to be people probably in the face of some of these tragedies running off after certain things. Right? And say, well, we survived COVID-19, so I guess we weren't meant to be married in the first place. Whatever. I don't know. This is stupidest decisions that people make. All kinds of stuff's going to be going on. And then Jesus will suddenly come. So stop. basically, he's teaching them not to play games with it. It's already set, is what he's saying. Verse 40. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. In other words, no, God is no respecter of persons. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. And there again is an action plan. Verse 42, be on the alert, for because you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Now we get, there's parables all over that Jesus taught about this, right? The servant that would be bad to the other servants because he thinks he's not going to come in a while. That's right over in Matthew 25, right? All over the New Testament, Jesus is saying, don't do it, don't do it. Be focused, right? The parable of the ten virgins, that's in Matthew 25. He's going to go on. We're not going to read it today, but the bottom line is this is all telling us, be on the alert for you do not know which day the Lord is coming because there is a natural progression. We get afraid. We see tragedy. We want to avoid tragedy, so we look for easy ways out. Easy ways out are not godly ways. They're not what God would have you to do. You don't take the easy way out. You take the right way, and if it isn't a way out, you die. Fine. Go to heaven. Gosh, we're crying out loud. And that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 43, almost done with the chapter. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In other words, you don't get to go, well, Jesus is going to come at 2 a.m., so at about 155, I'm going to repent. You don't get to deal with the coming tragedies and the problems in a God, an ungodly, worldly way, thinking that you'll get it all straight before Jesus comes. Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome and some kind of a proclaimed Christian, waited to be baptized until he was on his deathbed because he wanted all of his sins to be washed away by his baptism. We, we understand that's not even biblical baptism. He also, before the his first and greatest battle, he had become a Christian, and he had the priests stand by the river, dip branches in the river, march his army by, and baptize the whole army by sprinkling, which then he did go have a magnanimous victory, a great victory, and he thought it was because they were all baptized. Is that a version of Christianity that you're familiar with? It's not one that we're supposed to live, but it is a version of Christianity that we're supposed that we're familiar with. It's on our streets. It's a, it's I hope it's not in our houses, but it's all around us. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Verse 45. Who then 
is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. In other words, be doing what God has given you to do when Jesus comes again, regardless of all of these other things. Truly I say to you that, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. You can read, he'll inherit everything that God has for him if he's just found doing what he's supposed to be doing when Jesus comes. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know. In other words, if you're not doing what it is that God wants you to do because that you feel like that's better for you because Jesus hasn't come again yet, whatever, if you're playing games with the life that you're supposed to lead for, lead for God, Jesus is going to come when you're not ready. And verse 51 it says, And shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. And we know from our sermon last week that the weeping and gnashing of teeth will be because people will see Abraham and Jacob going in, even though they never knew Jesus, and we will not go in with them. So here's what I want you to see out of this passage. Remember I said it's almost done? From the moment that Jesus came and walked the earth, he could realistically have said about his life, it's almost done. 33, 35 years, whatever it was that he was on earth, they try to track it by the festivals. If you track it by the festivals, you're going to get either 34 or 35 years. Best understanding that we've got, that he was probably on the earth. Jesus was almost done every day of his life. He learned to live being almost done. Now, as he got closer and closer to the cross, which he knew was coming, there were those who came to kill him. Remember, we read about that last week. Two instances at least, they came to kill him. But he couldn't. They couldn't. You know why? Because it wasn't his time yet, and because he knew he was almost done. The whole time, he knew he was almost done. So when they came to kill him, they said, you, you can't. I'm just going to walk away now. You can't kill me because I'm almost done. The church has always been almost done. From the moment God put his Holy Spirit inside the soul of a human being, inside the body of a human being with his spirit, so it's in there, from that moment that he entered in, the church was almost done. Now, I get it. You live to be 100 years old, that's a lot of days. Because of pollution, because of distraction, because of temptation, because of we don't eat right, because we don't sleep right, because we don't drink enough water, because we're wrapped up in what our kids are doing or what our friends are doing or living vicariously through somebody else, because we're so busy trying to beat the video game, make the paycheck, get the wage in, fix our vehicle, go where we want to go, do what we want to go do, plan our vacations. Because of all that, it seems like a hundred years is a long time. I submit to you that two days on the other side of your death, a hundred years is going to seem like a blink of an eye. You were almost done from the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why it's perfectly logical, perfectly sensible, and easily expectable by God for us to endure to the end because you're almost done. When I was, in, was, when I was a junior high, I ran track. When Sherry was in junior high, all through high school, she ran track. And both of us were long-distance runners. Now, I, I copped out. I quit just about everything before I got saved. Sherry never quit. She never quit anything. She only started doing certain things, but whatever she started doing, she never quit. So she would she was running track. She became a mile runner. She ran longer distances as well. She ran cross country and like that. And when I was running, this is what they taught. 
When you get to that last quarter of the quarter of a mile, so you've run two miles, you've run a mile and three quarters, and then you hit that last wraparound toward the finish line, you run hard, you run fast, you run the best leg of the race you possibly can. Now, if at the end you can barely stand, if, you, if your legs give out as you cross the finish line, if you've got nothing left, whatever, so be it, but you run all that you've got Every last ounce, why? Because you're almost done. This race is almost over. There's no beginning. There's no starting. There's no getting ahead. There's no nothing. At that point, you run. You're almost done. You run all the way through the finish line with all that you've got. And if you die and your heart bursts, at least you ran a good race. Obviously, you can't actually run until your heart bursts under those circumstances. At least most people can't. You might run from an axe murderer until your heart bursts, but you're probably not going to run to your heart bursts in a track event unless you have a heart condition. When you're almost done, you can give it your all. And that's exactly what God expected from his people from the beginning. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, though he prayed, Lord, if there's some other way, take this cup from me. He also said, when Peter pulled out the sword and struck the servant and chopped his ear off, Jesus put it back on and he said, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword and all that. Jesus said to Peter, what am I going to not take the cup that my father gives me? Jesus was almost done. For every day of his life, he was almost done. For 34, 35 years, he was almost done. We are almost done. The church is almost done. Do I know that Jesus is going to come today, next week, next month, next year? No, but I do know, based on this passage of Scripture, that God expects us to live every day as if we are almost done. Jesus was almost done. The church has always been almost done. But notice that this passage of Scripture is very clear about something. And that is that done always comes after almost done. Have you ever baked a cake? It goes like this. Almost done, done, burnt. I've baked a bunch of cakes and that's how that ends. Burnt. Almost done, done, burnt. Here's what happens. I'm in the kitchen. It's almost done. It'll be done in four minutes. I forget to set the timer. I go sit down and I forget I'm baking a cake. And I go... Oh, smells like it's done. I run to the kitchen. It's burned. This is what people are doing. We're almost done. You can't take your hands off the steering wheel. You can't not set the timer. You can't not live for Jesus. You can't get distracted by others who say they know better how to live for Jesus. You can't do it halfway. You can't not worship. You can't not pray. You can't not read your Bible. You can't do any of those things, even though they're all easier. And this is what Jesus was teaching in this passage of Scripture. They looked up at the buildings. Is he seeing the buildings, Jesus? And he said, yeah, I see the buildings. Do you see the buildings? Because those buildings represented something to Jesus, and he thought that they should represent something to the disciples and the apostles. And I use those words. They were right alongside each other at that time, right? Disciples and apostles. Should have represented something to them, but all they saw was the power and might of the Jewish religion. And aren't we so glad that God is good and gave us good things and that we have avoided tragedy and we've been so blessed and like that? They represented, those buildings represented a lifestyle. They didn't represent a, a holy God because if they had represented a holy God, then the outer area where the Gentiles were wouldn't have been filled with people selling stuff. They'd have been making room for Gentiles to come in and worship a holy God. Jesus wouldn't have had to clear the temple with a whip made of cords if the temple was the right thing. And it wasn't. 
And it was the sign of the sacrifice, which was flawed and never could forgive the sins of men. But Jesus could do that. He was the ultimate perfect sacrifice and would forgive the sins of men. And the temple that Jesus was, Jesus' body would be destroyed to do that. And the temple that was the Jewish temple, I submit to you, would be destroyed for a parable, a teaching, a story to help us realize that people do things when they think they've got it right that just aren't right. They just aren't because they don't realize they're almost done. Done comes after almost done. You can't bring it forward. You can't do it. You cannot bring heaven to earth. Can't do it. It's not here. You may play a video game or play, or you may take your kid to the park, or you may sit in the sunshine and feel the warmth raining on your skin. You may experience wonderful times with your wife or with your friends, or with your husband, or your grandkids. You may be super excited to see your debts paid off. You may have all kinds of victories, all kinds of things that seem good in this lifetime, but you're not done. You're just almost done. How many times have I heard people say, we're going out on Wednesday. Well, what are you going out for? You got no money. Well, I know, but it's her birthday. We've just got to go. We've got to. You got to go out on your birthday, right? No, you don't. And you don't have to build a temple just because you have the money to do so. You don't have to put up a sign that says, hey, look at me. I'm almighty, holy follower of God. What you need to do is actually be the church, actually be a follower of God, actually be concerned about the fact that while you're doing what you're doing, while you're saying what you're saying, Jesus might come right now and number you amongst the hypocrites and cast you out there where there's much weeping of national teeth. That's a pretty big concern. We're almost done, but done comes after almost done. And this is the beauty of it. Jesus says, done will be obvious. Done will be so obvious that until done is done, you can stop worried about when done will be done. Remember I told you when you're, you're baking the cake and it's almost done, you got to set the timer because when it's done, it's done. Jesus is saying, look, don't set a timer. Don't set any limits. Live all out on fire, powerful for me. Let the Holy Spirit lead you to do the things you're supposed to do right up until the moment the trump sounds. God, Lord. Jesus, I hope I'm knocking on a door to tell somebody about Jesus or preaching the gospel or giving my money or spending my sweat, blood, and tears when Jesus comes again. I hope I'm living like it might be another day or another hundred years. And I don't mean living like building a temple or living like I'm proud or living like I'm successful or living like I'm victorious or living like I'm having a good day. I mean Poured all in like this might be the last chance I get to serve Jesus. This might be the last chance I get to win a soul. Poured like that. Poured out like a drink offering. I hope that's what I'm like when Jesus comes. But the fact is, between now and then, tragedy will come. And I got a bad allergy to tragedy. I don't like it when people die. I don't like it when bills go unpaid. I don't like it when people near me get sick. I don't like it when people that told me that they'd be there don't show up. I don't like it when people who say they're followers of Jesus don't serve. I don't like it when people who sing praises to God don't live like they praise God. And I don't like it when people who say they live like they praise God don't sing praises to God. I'm a man who's much concerned about a bunch of stuff. Tragedy will come. Stuff I don't like. And Jesus was warning in this passage of Scripture that 
people respond to tragedy this way, they look for false solutions. And so we've been saying since Jesus left the earth, though God required him to go to the cross and bleed out probably virtually every last drop of blood in his body since he left, came back again, Holy Spirit empowerment came, conviction, spiritual gifts, leadership, understanding, wisdom as a gift from God, all of that came. And since then, we've been saying, well, God will forgive me. God will help me get through this too. God will give me endurance. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to do it the hard way. I don't have to struggle. I'm so glad all things are permissible now. I have a bad allergy to tragedy, and I think mankind in general does. And we break out in false solutions. Motivated by fear and desperation, we rush to some kind of a solution. You want to know what the solution to people being hungry is? You want to know what the solution to your car being broke down is? You want to know what the solution to not having enough money is? You want to know what the solution to being sad about some event that's taken place in your life is? There is one solution. Just one. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. If everybody believed in Jesus, there wouldn't be people who take more than they need. There wouldn't be people who victimize others or as Autumn showed us during an inspirational moment who use those evil words to terrify people and keep them at bay and in their place. We wouldn't have that, if ever, but not everybody's going to be a follower of Jesus. I understand that. You can't control it. You can just control one of those, and that's you. You can be a follower of Jesus. You can stop looking for false solutions. You can stop being motivated by fear and desperation. What if a false teacher comes, and they begin to do grand miracles, and the blind see, and the lame walk? And the inhibited, the, the secret quiet people who can barely do anything bust out praises. And they start to say, we have this version of Jesus. But it's not the version of Jesus that says that God might require you to go to the cross or that God might require you to be sacrificed or that God might require you to be martyred or that God might require you to go out. Not might. God does require you to go out and tell anybody who will listen about the gospel. Rather, it's the version of Jesus that says, while it's beautiful, God is so good for us, and all these miracles are happening, all that, let's build big buildings, let's build big dollar amounts, let's build big trust funds, let's buy TV commercials, and let's give away stuff, and let's live grand and large on this earth. Because what? Because it's love. Because we'll love people. We'll love everybody. And that gospel is not Jesus' gospel. And then you can go and you can be part of that and you can feel good about yourself. In fact, it'll be a nice salve for your tragedy allergic reaction. And your fear and your, your desperate motivations might actually even go away. You begin to feel comfortable. I don't have to struggle anymore. I don't have to strain anymore. I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to beat myself up over not quite being right anymore. Because everything's taken care of. 
But if it's a false Christ, and Jesus warns that there will be those who come and have that kind of authority, false Christs and false prophets, plural, false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Done comes after almost done. There are no easy way out methods. It's not going to be prettier than it is when you decide to just break out of your shell and serve Jesus with suffering and pain and tragedy all on the table as a possibility. It's not going to be happier. It's not going to be filled with more joy. There's not going to be more contentment. There's not going to be more power and more righteousness, more holiness, more mercy, or more grace in any other gospel other than the one that you just say, here is all my hot mess, and here it is, Jesus. Use it every day. It doesn't get any better than that. You say, but I've got to stop. I'm so, I'm so traumatized by my own hot mess that I can hardly live for Jesus. I, I've got to have a fix. I need a solution. And Jesus is saying that from the moment they looked up at the temple, from the moment they begin to ask him about how long, how long and when will it be and, and how, how can we know? And when you ask those questions, what you're saying is I need an easier way out than what Jesus has presented. And Jesus was saying, look, there just is no easier way out. He used the parable of the destruction of Jerusalem to say on that day, don't go back after your extra cloak. What do you think? What do you got extra cloak for anyway? Well, I might, I might need one. I might, I might be a, I might find a hole in the one that I have, and so I need an extra cloak, right? And so, then now Jesus calls and says, now Jesus says, and it was even calls, right? Tragedy comes, and and I'm supposed to respond a certain way. This is that tragedy. I'm supposed to do a certain thing. I'm prepared for this moment in time. But gosh, what if my my, my first, my A number one cloak gets a hole, and I better grab my my number two cloak in case I get a hole in my first cloak. It's, people get worried about wrapped up in security and the things of the world, and I've got to have it. I need it to feel like I'm okay. You don't need to feel okay. The glory of God is not about making you feel okay. The glory of God is about winning your soul and bringing you home. It's about taking you from not done at all to almost done. And then eventually, when Jesus comes again, to completely done. Because you can put anything you want in a cake but only certain things make a cake. So you can decide that you want to fill your days with things that make you feel better. You can build temples, monuments to your own greatness, monuments to your loyalty. You can give and serve because you want to, or you can give and serve because He said so, because He deserves it, because of the respect that you have for Him as a God, as the God. There will be ways out offered and they will look good and we should not follow. That's what he's saying. Over in the book of Luke, we won't go there and read it for the interest of time, but I encourage you to do that in chapter 23. During Jesus' crucifixion, right about the same time that they grabbed Simon the Cyrene to make him carry the cross because Jesus is too beat up. Jesus says, if they'll do these things in a green tree, what will they do in the dry? And most commentators say that Jesus is talking about, if, you, if they'll do these things to me and I never did anything wrong, I never sinned, 
right? If they'll crucify me publicly in front of everybody and I never did it, what will they eventually do to you when you don't do what's right? This is being, it's like you're sealing your fate because you're living your own way, not God's way. And I just live God's way and I'm getting crucified for that. Surely they're going to crucify lots and lots of people over the ages. And that has happened both in actuality and speaking figuratively. Over the ages, lots of people have been crucified because they weren't living for the Lord. And Jesus, and that's what a lot of commentators say. But I submit to you, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, while you're almost done, you're living in a green day. He's in a green tree day. He said this elsewhere. He said, let's work now because the time is coming when no man can work. So you're living in a green tree day. Your retirement might be building. Your bills and debts might be going down or they might be going up because you might be on upswing and you're buying stuff and your bills are going up, right? You kids, everyone that's here, we're basically doing okay. I mean, we've got issues, but... This is a green tree day. Your worst day as a follower of Jesus. You in sin as a follower of Jesus. You fighting with the most significant person in your life as a follower of Jesus. Those days, those are green tree days because you're almost done. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's a green tree day because you're almost done and it's going to end. And Jesus says, if you do that in a green tree day, what will you do in a dry day? So what are you going to do when the next, not this one necessarily, but the next world pandemic actually does kill? Revelation says the virus will come that will kill one-third of the world's population. And a lot of people believe that's a tribulation that will come after we're out of this world. But if what if God does it the other way? What if we're still here and a virus kills one-third of the world's population? Who here is with me to go knocking on doors and tell people about Jesus? Are we going to have us a block party? Are we going to have a crosswalk? Will we cancel our services? Will we stop praying? Will we stop reading? Will we stop serving? You know what? Sometimes I wonder myself what we'll stop doing because most of us ain't praying, reading, or serving now. Not like we could be. You say, well, I block out five hours a week. Really, that's not even a tithe on your time. 168 hours a week. If you're not using 17 of it specifically for God to serve, you're not even giving God 10% of your time specifically. Now, I know you can do that in minutes throughout, so some people might be. And I get that. And you say, but then there's the world, and I deal with all this stuff, and I'm busy, and I got a job, and I got a, I got a, a group, and I got to teach, or I got a coach, or I got a camp, or I got a, let's go. You make your own list. If you can't do anything that's on that list serving God, in a green day, what will you do in a dry? Let's be very realistic, right? I said to my wife the day before yesterday, I said, you know, we're sitting okay with groceries and stuff like that. I say, she, she, like, she likes to go to the grocery store. I don't like to go to the grocery store, but Sherry likes to go to the grocery store and, and she'll pick up bargains. She feels like she's doing a good thing, right? And I said, I think you need to cut your grocery store trips down for the foreseeable future next few weeks. Let's not go to the grocery store quite so often. I said, here's what we'll do. If you really need to go, let's go like at midnight. You know, when there's not going to be quick. Because it's busy. It's very busy. And there was a man... And the grocery store who was coughing and sneezing in relative proximity. And I'm not afraid of that. What are we in proximity to me, but of other people? And I'm saying there's people. And so I'm saying, like, well, you're going to go. Let's go once or twice a week and let's go late when it's not quite so stinking busy, right? You can't mitigate tragedy, but you can be smart. And this is what Governor DeWine, by the way, who is a professing Christian, was saying when he was saying, look, we're going to take these steps. The reality is, what's most important is, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. But don't be stupid about it. Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, when Satan said, just cast yourself off the temple. It says right here in Scripture that you won't 
hit your foot against a stone. The, the angels won't allow it. And if he'd have jumped off the temple, the angels would have carried him down. And that would have been his public entrance. And everybody would have known, right? Except he'd already done a bunch of miracles and people didn't believe anyway. So why would they have believed that miracle? Except that would have been his temptation. He would have given to it. And then you and I wouldn't be saved. What I'm saying is this. You've got to take the steps. But the primary, the single most important step is to live for God daily. And then commentators and other people read this passage of scripture and they say, well, there's some useful information in here about how they, you know, Jesus sort of warned his followers to flee Jerusalem and go, and they went out to Pella and whatever, and they were all saved. And if we listen to the prophecies of Jesus, we'll be okay. And that's what we should learn, right? Jesus was looking up at those temples of the temple and they said, do you not see all these things? And Jesus says, yeah. And let me say it this way. He said, yeah. And I see that all this that man built in a green day, all this that man built when he was strong, when he was wealthy, when he was protected, even though he was ruled over by the Roman government. That was built at the time. He was ruled over by the Roman government. But even though that was all true, he said, God is going to tip all that over, turn it all over, and destroy it all. And that's what God's going to do. That's what God's going to do to your video games. That's what God's going to do to your projects. That's what God's going to do to your relationships. It's all going to be shaken. All of it. There will come a shaking where everything is shaken. And if you're not ready at that time to curtail back your entertainment, cut back your enjoyment, to cut back, to actually walk into tragedy with God, He says it. He's going to come when you're not ready and number you amongst the hypocrites. I didn't say it. Jesus said it. And you get mad at me? You want to get mad at the Bible? You want to get mad at Jesus? You don't like it that God is saying you just can't spend... Now listen, I run role-playing games. 25, 30 hours a week. We do it in a Christian godly way. We pray before we eat. We post them online and we look for people. I, on, on the podcast, I talk about Christian Games Team. I talk about getting involved with the ministry here, coming to church. We do it in a God. If you cannot do it in a Godly and I'm telling you right now that eventually God will cut all of that out. You hear me? He'll cut it all out. And it'll just come down to one person telling one person about Jesus and getting saved or not. Somebody, somebody is going to be the last person ever to get this truth that you have to live every day for Jesus. I don't know who that's going to be. Somebody's going to be the last one. And if you haven't done it, you better do it today because you might be the last one. Jesus' whole teaching, all of this, you're looking for a way out? There isn't one. But in finding life, sometimes people become addicted to avoiding tragedy. You pray to God, God, give me strength. God, heal me of this or that. Heal my boy. Heal my girl. Heal my relationship. We pray we ask God to do for us so that we can avoid tragedy or become addicted to enjoying life over what we perceive as struggles and difficulty. I want to do it my way. I want my wife or my husband to do it my way. I want my kid's teacher. I want my kid to do it my way so that I can avoid tragedy and enjoy my life. That is not Christianity. That is not what Jesus did. Because if he said, I want to do it my way, he wouldn't have went to the cross. He wouldn't have endured 
all that he went through. Let me sum it up this way by conclusion. First, first thing I want you to see is we are almost done. I know it sucks. The truth is, in your flesh, in my flesh, this sucks. The gospel is not the glorious gem in my crown that I would want it to be. You don't get gems in your crown because God just feels good about you. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes people get burnt at the stake. Sometimes they get crucified. Sometimes they get their fingernails pulled out to find out who it was that talked to them about Jesus. We've got missionaries, Southern Baptist missionaries, men and women like the people in this room and young people. There's a family, two families, in fact, in China. One of them's got five kids between the ages of two and 13 or 14. And the, the family that's, that has those five kids hasn't had diapers in five months for their two-year-old. We're griping and moaning about stuff. They haven't been able to get diapers in five months because they went there to tell people about Jesus. And when they said, you better leave and we'll pay all your expenses to get home, they said, no, we're going to stay because here we have people who are close to accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's more important. We're talking about, in America, churches are considering canceling their services. They didn't leave the Wuhan province on the off chance they might lead a few more people to Christ. I'm dying to hear those stories. The impact of that decision. We've got missionaries, dozens of them, and we're partners with Southern Italy, which is totally closed. Nobody in, nobody out. It has one. It has the highest, one of the highest mortality rates in the world after the after China. And our missionaries are in there serving, telling people about Jesus. Families, men and women with children. We're almost done. And the suffering that we're called to, the difficulty, put yourself last. Put Jesus first. And work everything else out in between. We're almost done. Number one, waiting for Jesus means living to die. If Jesus doesn't come again first, we're all going to die. And we're going to live to die. There's a lot of folks who are ready to die, and they haven't even lived yet. They don't know Jesus. They go bungee jumping, paradiving, parasailing, or into all kinds of high-risk things. You know what they're trying to do? They're trying to feel alive. They say, I never feel so alive as when I'm falling, free-falling from an airplane, and I don't have a parachute on. And I'm thinking, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. But they say they never felt more alive. Because dead people do anything to feel alive. I feel alive. I feel like Jesus won me, loved me, called me, empowered me, imbued me, set me on fire, and I'm a walking Roman candle. Except when my allergy to tragedy kicks up and I start looking for another way out. And Jesus was reminding them that there is no easy way out. There isn't one. No shortcuts. No breaks. It's 24-7 Jesus from here until we're actually done. There is no easy way to overcome tragedy. It's a little tongue-in-cheek, but basically the greatest thing that could ever happen to you would be that you would be persecuted for your faith. That means that someone would treat you badly because you are living for Jesus. 
It's said that the martyrs come into the kingdom of God first. The people who die for Jesus get to go into the kingdom of God first. That means they probably arrive first in the new heaven and the new earth. One of the greatest things that could ever happen to a being. There is no way out. Face your allergy to tragedy and realize something tragic is going to happen if Jesus doesn't come again first. And for everybody who doesn't know Jesus when he comes, that will be the great tragedy. We are waiting for Jesus, which means living to die. There is no easy way out. Perseverance is what's called for, not escape. And then he says, take steps. But first take steps. He says, take steps. Prepare for the tragedy. Go ahead. You know, buy a couple extra rolls of toilet paper. Buy the food that you like. Pay up your bills for a rainy day. Put some money in a savings account in case things go wrong. Save money for your retirement. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But first, take steps. Determine how, by what methods, by what means, and discipline yourself to follow those methods and means you will live for Jesus every day. Don't put a dollar in your 401k until you put your blood, sweat, and tears into today. Don't dream about a better vehicle or a better job or a better relationship until you put your blood, sweat, and tears in a godly way into the relationship that you have today. And which relationship comes first? Your relationship with Jesus. Tragedy will come. Waiting for Jesus means living to die. There is no easy way out. It's about perseverance, not escape. Take steps. Go ahead. Could be straight off of the manifesto for Governor DeWine, for the North American Mission Board President, for the Southern Baptist Convention President, for our State Convention of Baptist and Ohio President, for Dwayne Floro, who's the guy who oversees the life stations at the State Convention. They all say the same thing. Take steps. Go ahead. But first, take steps. Jesus, you are my Lord and Master. I will not save a dollar for a rainy day until I've used the dollar, that same dollar, for your glory. I will not build my relationship in my own strength. Rather, I will bring the gospel in. Pray with your children. Pray with your spouse. Pray for the lost people that you know. Share the gospel. Tragedy will come. And people are scared to death in the face of COVID-19, which is a joke as far as world pandemics go. I'm not telling anybody don't take steps. I just told you, take steps. Sanitize your hands. Don't sneeze on your neighbor. Don't let your neighbor sneeze on you. If you get it, stay indoors for 14, stay away from everybody for 14 days. Take steps. But first, take steps. What if you get the virus and you're inside and 13 days into your 14-day quarantine, Jesus comes again? You better figure out how you're going to live those 13 days quarantined away from mankind, still for Jesus. Take steps. But first, take steps. That's what Jesus is talking about in chapter 24, and it's all the same thing. They said to him, see those buildings? He said, do you see them? And I'm asking you, do you see them? 
Do you see the buildings that have constructed in your life in a green day that maybe they don't even need to be there? God's going to turn them on their head. God's going to tear them down to their root and rip up their foundations. And if you're pretty fanciful of what you've created outside of God's will, you just might be swept up along with that destruction. Instead, say, okay, it's a green day, and I'm almost done. I'm almost done. i got to run harder. i got to live more for Jesus and less to avoid tragedy. Right after this, Jesus would experience, and so would they, frankly, the greatest tragedy. And you know where we see him after Jesus is crucified, before his resurrection, before he comes back in their presence, we see them hiding out in the upper room. And maybe you want to hide out in the upper room of your life when tragedy comes. But he doesn't leave them there. He calls them out. And he's calling us out. You have been listening to this message from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo. New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church of East Toledo was a Southern Baptist Church plant begun uh, a decade and a half ago, constituting four years ago this May. And so uh, praise God for all that God is doing in Toledo. If you're interested in hooking up with the ministry in a variety of ways, you can check us out on churchtoledo.com. That's churchtoledo.com. And all of the different ministries are listed there. If you need to give to the ministry, you can text G-I-V-E to 419-419-0095. If you are interested in information and updates about the ministry because you are in the Toledo area and you'd like to get involved, you can text INFO, info to 419-419-0095 and uh, we'll keep you informed. And we just uh, praise God for all the good work that he's doing in this difficult day of the coronavirus, COVID-19 as it were called. Um, just to ask you to take steps to protect your family, protect yourself, but more importantly, most of all, take steps to follow the Lord Jesus and reach new heights in Jesus. God bless you today.